and feel free to take your time and clean anything that you may feel you need to and don't feel rushed. <clears throat> Good afternoon, um, Mr. Van. Just since this, for public record purposes, will be a separate video um, out there. Um, we are here in the case of 21 or 21410 versus Matamie Carolina Corporation. I'm Judge Hunter Murphy. With me today, Judge Allegra Collins, Judge Jeff Carpenter, and uh, we'll be with the appellant when the appellant is ready. Hey, please the court. Um, I am Christopher Van of the Mecklenburg County Bar. I represent the plaintiff's appellants. I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. The question in this case is whether the defendants are liable to the, for damage to the plaintiff's property interests. The plaintiffs own lakefront property on Lake Wiley in South Carolina. Defendants were constructing a housing development in Charlotte when their stormwater retention dam burst, flooding plaintiff's cove with sediment and debris. <clears throat> Plaintiffs filed claims for trespass, violation of the Sedimentation Pollution Control Act of 1973, injunction, and nuisance. The claims for trespass, violation of the act, and the injunction were dismissed pursuant to defendant's Rule 12C motion for judgment on the pleadings. We conducted discovery, and the plaintiff's claim for nuisance was dismissed at summary judgment. We contend these dismissals are error and require reversal. With respect to a 12C motion, this court exercises de novo review of the trial court. The standard for a 12C motion is set forth in Ragsdale v. Kennedy. Quote, a motion for judgment on the pleadings is the proper procedure when all of the material allegations of fact are admitted in the pleadings and only questions of law remain. When the pleadings do not resolve all of the factual issues, judgment on the pleadings is generally inappropriate. First, we contend the plaintiffs properly pled a claim for a private cause of action under the Sedimentation Pollution Control Act. Plaintiffs alleged that defendants initiated land disturbing activity on more than one acre of land, and those allegations were admitted by the defendants. The complaint also asserts that defendants failed to install such sedimentation and erosion control devices as to retain the sediment, and that this failure violated the act, and that plaintiffs were damaged as a result of that. Defendant denied these allegations. It's our contention that that um, was essentially decided the 12C motion. When we have a denial of the factual allegations in the complaint, we have a material, a question of material issue of fact. Therefore, 12C is inappropriate under Ragsdale. In their brief, defendants. You, you, you can see, though, that there was no allegation regarding them having been fined or cited by the city, correct? That is correct. Yes, sir. And. Um, in their, in their uh, brief, defendants contend 
that the Applewood decision requires that as an element of the claim. Um, with respect, I disagree. I don't believe Applewood says that, as, that it's an element of the claim. What Applewood says is that in order to have standing for a private cause of action under the Sedimentation Pollution Control Act, there must have been, the defendants must have been cited for a violation of a local ordinance or rule. In this case, we have that. The defendants were cited for the violation of the Charlotte um, Soil Erosion Ordinance, and they were fined $68,000. Now, I concede the plaintiff's pleading could have been more precise and included that specific allegation in there. However, we do not um, believe that it is required to state a proper claim for a private cause of action under the Act. First, defendants did not raise the issue of standing. That, that issue with respect to the citation for a, a violation, Applewood makes clear that's an issue of standing. That in order for the plaintiffs to have standing, this, there has to be some kind of adjudication by some regulatory authority that the defendant's conduct violated um, some statute or local ordinance. Does a complaint have to plead sufficient facts to show standing, or, or when you inquire in their standing, can you go outside of the pleadings? I would first contend, yes, that we, can, we, plead, we plead sufficient facts to allege standing. Secondly, defendants did not raise standing as an issue. They did not challenge it in their answer nor did they file a 12B motion, which we contend is the proper vehicle for challenging standing. Um, and in the findings that the trial court made in her order, she does not address or mention that standing was, was an issue. We contend that because this was before the court, the trial court, on a 12C motion, the only issue is, are, were there material, sufficient material allegations of fact that are in dispute, which we contend they are because the defendants denied the two most pertinent ones. And secondly, um, do we have a claim for relief under the law, which we contend we do because it's a private cause of action under the statute. But if we reach the issue of standing, lack of standing is never a basis for a dismissal with prejudice. Standing goes to the jurisdiction of the court to adjudicate the claim. If a party does not have standing, then the court does not have jurisdiction to adjudicate the claim and it should be dismissed without prejudice. So here, the trial court did not make any findings with respect to standing, but as you sit de novo, if you find that that was a required element and it was not specifically pled, then the remedy is not dismissed with prejudice. It's dismissal without prejudice to, allege it, to give the plaintiffs a, a chance to allege standing and cure that procedural defect. The same analysis applies with respect to the um, injunction claim. Injunction is a remedy under the private cause of action with the Sedimentation Control Act. Um, we allege sufficient facts. Certain of those facts were denied. 12C was not appropriate. Next, we contend that the trial court erred by dismissing plaintiff's claim for nuisance at summary judgment. Again, the standard review for this court is de novo review. In order to support a claim for private nuisance, plaintiffs must show that defendants substantially and unreasonably interfered with the use and enjoyment of plaintiff's property. Now, defendants make two contentions with respect to this. First, they contend that the cove is not plaintiff's property and it is, in fact, owned by Duke Energy. Our response to that is that as lakefront property owners, plaintiffs have a common law littoral rights, which include the right to use and enjoy the lake. As the Sundale, which is a New Hampshire case that I cited in my brief noted, lakefront property generally costs more because of that privilege. All three plaintiffs testified that their family's use and enjoyment 
of the lake had been substantially interfered with as a result of the increased sedimentation from the dam spill. But let me ask two, two questions there. Um, the first, do in, does anything in the record, this depositions, whichever, show that it interfered with their use of enjoyment of any property rights they had within the state of North Carolina? Or all the property rights just within the state of South Carolina? Well, I would respond first, the specific, all the property rights are in the state of South Carolina. So the answer would be no, no interference with North Carolina property rights because their property is located in South Carolina. But we're dealing with the common law. Our, our claim for our, our property interest sufficient for the nuisance claim is latoyal rights, which is common law. And I don't see in my analysis. Even if that, that's the case, those rights can differ state to state. Uh, what in your, your arguments in your brief uh, and I've gone through it a couple of times, and maybe I'm missing it. Where do you ever point us to what those rights encompass under South Carolina law? I just don't see that anywhere. And, and I apologize if I've missed it, but I, I've looked a couple of times, and I want to be clear if I've missed that point. Um, in the reply brief, and unfortunately, there was a typo, um, but... On page six of the reply brief, I cite the Low Country Open Land Trust v. State, which is a South Carolina Court of Appeals opinion. And in Low Country, the South Carolina Court of Appeals, and this is a um, 2001 case, they state that separate and apart from riparian rights, interests attached to property abutting an ocean, sea, or lake are termed littorial. Littorial rights arise under common law. And then they state the extent of littorial rights in this jurisdiction is an unanswered question. So to answer your question, South Carolina has not specifically set forth what the limit is of littorial rights, of the common law littorial rights in South Carolina. And so under conflict of laws analysis, if the forum state has not, if the, I guess, the site where the injury occurred has not set forth that, we can use the forum state, which is North Carolina, which has said that littorial rights include the access to the water and the use and enjoyment of the water. And that is identical. Uh, I cited a New Hampshire case, the Sundale case. It's identical to what I see as North Carolina law and the common law. I also cited a couple of New York cases, which are it's the same analysis of um, your littoral rights as a lakefront property owner include the use and enjoyment of the lake and access to the lake. And in the Sundell case, the New Hampshire case, the um, defendant was... Um, I guess, a, a, a factory that was depositing um, material into the lake that created algae. And the New Hampshire court held that that was efficient, um, that, inv that in in violated their littoral rights such that they had a private cause of action for nuisance. Mr. Van, the, to be clear, the alleged nuisance hasn't prevented access to the lake. It, it's made yes, the, it's made the, cove more shallow. Is that fair? It, it has made it more shallow. It has um, the, the testimony of the plaintiffs are that their use and enjoyment of use, that they don't swim there anymore, that they don't like to walk on it because it's all mucky and, and nasty. Um, that they, um, Mr. Kelke in his deposition specifically testified he has issues raising and lowering his boat because muck and debris grab onto it. Um, 
Mr. Allison testified in his deposition that he doesn't use his propeller to boat out of there, that he kind of paddles his way out to get out of the cove. So, yes, to, to be clear, they have access to the lake, but their use and enjoyment has been compromised as a result of the sedimentation and, and the debris. Is there anything in South Carolina that would say the littoral rights or riparian rights exceed access and include use and enjoyment of the water, more or less? Um, I, can I did not specifically cite it in my brief. I, I cited it before the trial court. There is the, the South Carolina Treatise on Environmental Law, and I will file this as a supplemental proceeding when I get back, uh, I'm sorry, supplemental authority when I get back to my office. The, the Treatise on South Carolina Law, Environmental Law, does state that littoral rights include um, use and enjoyment of the water. And you maintain that was raised at the hearing below? I did, I did raise that before the trial court, but I did not cite it in my brief. Uh, all right, give me just one second, let me just check something real quick. If I'm not mistaken, and, and again, I may be, the transcript from the hearing below has not been filed in this case, correct? That is correct. Thank you. That was my question at that point. I, I interrupted you. You were talking about the, the kind of two parts of private nuisance, talking about Duke Energy's ownership rights, and then um, I got you a little bit off your, your outline there. Yes, sir. So the... The first issue is the substantial interference with their property rights. We contend their littoral rights is the sufficient property interest that's been interfered with for the, to give rise to the private nuisance claim. Secondly, um, the defendants argue in their brief that, well, the, this dam spill, this is a one-time event, and that it needs to be, in order to qualify as a nuisance, it needs to be recurring or ongoing. And I would direct the court to the testimony of our expert, Dr. Brad Johnson from Davidson College, where he testified, he was examining the lake, um, the cove, I guess, in uh, December of 2020, the spill occurred in August of 17. And he found that the um, sedimentation after the dam failure was four to, seven higher, four to seven times higher than what sedimentation would be seen during normal development, and 15 to 20 time, 22 times higher than normal background sedimentation. And so this is an ongoing thing, that all of the when, the, when the dam burst and the stuff went down, all of the debris and sediment, everything didn't go down to the cove. Some of it stayed on the land, and then when we have rain events, that is then washed into the cove. And that was the same um, factual scenario in the, um, Whiteside Estates v. Highland Coves. Uh, 146 NC at 449. And I don't want to sound like a broken record on this, but again, for this one-time rule, that's a South Carolina rule. So are there any South Carolina cases that say <laughs> it's, if it's a continuous event, continuous deposit of sedimentation, we ignore that one-time event rule? That, that, that's where I, I, I continue to have problems with our, our choice of law issues here. I understand. Um, I do not believe, my research has not disclosed any South Carolina cases on sedimentation, but I do believe, and I will um, provide those to the court, did not cite them on my brief, that there are South Carolina cases with respect to uh, other, like noxious gases or fumes or, you know, other nuisance type conduct, that if it's on, ongoing. 
But, but wouldn't those be ongoing events, something producing a gas on January 1st produces a gas January 7th, January 14th, as opposed to a singular event? Are you saying that there's something about in South Carolina law regarding a singular event, which I think we're all in agreement this was a, a one-time dam failure? I would agree that, that the con repeated harm coming downstream qualifies as an exception to that one-time event rule. No, it, it's a, it, um, you have the one-time event, but it puts in motion a repeated occurrence of the same nuisance activity interfering with the use. The, the, I mean, the question with nuisance is, are my use and enjoyment of my property interests, is that affected by the defendant's conduct? And here we contend it is because our evidence is as of 2020, it's still a problem. It's a continuing problem. But there's not any continuing failure events, correct? That is correct. Okay. That is correct. And then, um, with respect to um, the trespass claim that was dismissed uh, on the motion for judgment on the pleadings, the analysis is the same as for the uh, act claim. We pled sufficient facts. Um, some of those allegations were denied by the defendants, therefore um, 12C was not appropriate. Do you uh, agree that, that South Carolina law differs from North Carolina civil trespass law and that South Carolina actually requires an in intentional um, invasion of the land, whereas North Carolina for civil purposes doesn't necessarily require an intentional invasion? I, um, I do agree that um, South Carolina law does require an intentional invasion. Is there, the there anything in, in the allegations or the depositions that shows that this dam failure was intentional or something else out there that, you know, is gross negligence, anything like that, that no. equates that with intention? There's nothing to bridge that gap from we did not We did not bridge that gap in the pleading, no, sir. Okay. Um, and then with respect to the um, I guess, I guess the only other issue is that I filed a, a Rule 60 motion and a motion to amend after the hearing on the summary judgment, but before the summary judgment was order was entered. And um, since I had to file the appeal prior to that, those orders being filed, the court was at, without jurisdiction during that period, during one dash, pursuant to 1-294. Um, therefore, those orders must be vacated. Unless the court has any other questions, that concludes my argument. One moment, let me check through mine. Judge Collins, did you have any other questions? I do not. You're, you're asking us, um, at least as to issue one, even if you lose on the standing, your position is that we should either vacate or reverse as to that portion of the order um, that dismissed with prejudice, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Judge Carpenter, anything else? No question. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. And you'll have about uh, almost 12 minutes when you come back.
Mr. McNeil, are you ready? Yes. May it please the court, my name is Rob McNeil. I represent the defendant, appellee, uh, which I will refer to as Madame. Um, the break in the sediment pond is an extremely unfortunate event. Madame devoted substantial resources to remediation and it takes some issue with the um, characterizations of the plaintiffs of the state of the cove, but I just want to say that while acknowledging that's not why we're here. We're here because we have a question of law uh, to deal with, and um, that question is, is basically a question about who can um, file a lawsuit uh, when there's damage done to uh, Lake Wiley and, um, uh, more, and, 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 and perhaps generally whether someone can sue to recover for damage for, to property that the plaintiff does not own. Um, Duke Energy owns Lake Wiley. It manages it pursuant to an agreement with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is known as FERC, and pursuant to their shoreline management plan, they allow the public to access Lake Wiley. And given that, any of us can use Lake Wiley, and when Lake Wiley is harmed, uh, that could impact any of our use of the lake. So when Lake Wiley is harmed, can everyone who can use Lake Wiley sue? The plaintiffs claim that they are, that they have the right to sue because they have the good fortune of owning lakefront property. To find that would be an extension of the law. It would also avoid um, the person who this cove is their favorite fishing cove. They have every bit is right. Every one of us has just as much right to be in the lake as these lakefront owners. And there is no reason to give these plaintiffs special rights to sue uh, for damage to the lake. To do so would be contrary to law. It would create a new class of plaintiffs. Uh, it would be very good for the law business, um, but would be an, uh, an extension of our existing um, statutory scheme. So is it Mr. your contention that, that the sole holder of the private right of action is Duke? Is that, your, is that your argument, at least on that one, not on trespass and nuisance? The yeah. pri private right of action? Right, would be Duke. That's, it's only Duke? Yes. Okay. Mr. Wonderful. McNeil, generally speaking, um, I come from a trial background, strike that. <laughs> uh, so, Mr. McNeil, oh, as, as part of the Lakeshore Management Program uh, implemented by Duke, uh, do the plaintiffs in this case lease uh, from high water mark to water from Duke Energy as they do on other lakes in the Duke Energy, uh, under Duke Energy management, for example, Lake Tillery? 
I'm not aware of that in this case. They um, supplied their deeds um, as exhibits to the complaint. I haven't seen in the record any uh, indication that they do any leasing. Um, I do think when they talk about uh, literal rights that they're talking about a right to access the water. Um, but as you know, uh, sometimes with these privately owned lakes, um, you don't have that right uh, to cross the, um, the area between the high water mark and the, and the mark of the property. So that's a whole, that's a whole other campaign. Generally, you have to pay extra for that. That is correct. Is there any dispute here that the rights that plaintiffs had are any different than those, as we described, exist here in North Carolina in Benson versus Prevost on uh, our case uh, 277 NC up 405 from last May? I'm sorry, I cannot. I'm sorry. In, uh, <laughs> I, I, I hate these masks. So in Benson versus Prevost, 277 NC at 405, which was relied in part in the plaintiff's brief, um, is there any dispute that the property rights that plaintiffs held to, to the waters and, and the lake are any different than those described in Benson versus Prevost? I, I, would, I would have to look at that case and see. What I, will, what I know is we think they have a right to, to get to the water. Um, we don't think they have any rights in the water beyond that. They've acknowledged in the record in their depositions that um, Duke can lower this lake if they want to, and they do it regularly. Uh, they don't have any rights to any particular depth. There's no law that says they have any rights to any particular water quality. Um, they're at the mercy of Duke Energy, which, you know, generally is, a, is benevolent about that, but Duke holds all the cards. And also, um, Council for Plaintiff has mentioned use at the, the hearing below a South Carolina um, treatise on either literal, littoral or riparian rights. Um, do you dispute that that was um, argued before the trial court? Below. What I can say is I don't remember it, but I would be shocked if Mr. Van misrepresented something to the court. Thank you, sir. Um, if, if the rights are, are the same as North Carolina, would your nuisance, would, would the plaintiff's nuisance claim be viable here? No. Okay. So we, we talked about uh, nuisance, uh, of course, in our brief. And one of the things we pointed out is the, uh, the uh, pattern jury structure for nuisance in North Carolina. Um, all of us who have done trials know that that's likely what we're going to get here. It's very hard to get judges to change their mind about that. And the first question is, did the defendant substantially and unreasonably interfere with the use and enjoyment of the plaintiff's property? And that did not happen in this case. This is not the typical nuisance case where 
um, there are vibrations that are vibrating the plaintiff, you know, vibrations on one property vibrating the plaintiff's property, that there's smoke, that they're noxious odors, that there's noise, that there's bright lights that are coming in and invading their property and making it so they cannot use and enjoy their property. The plaintiffs can do every single thing they have ever been able to do on their property. Their problem is that they can't if, if you take all their facts as true as we're required to here, that they can't enjoy Duke's property the way they used to. This is like if, if we had three houses in a row, houses one, two, and three, all on the same side of the street, house two has a swimming pool. For years, the people in house two have let the folks in house one swim in the pool, years and years and years. The owner of house three cuts down a tree in his backyard and the tree falls into the pool in house two, making it unswimmable. Does the owner of house one have a right to sue the owner of house three for messing up house two's pool? And I believe the answer to that is apparent. I hope it's apparent. They just don't. Uh, house one's property was not interfered with. Do I'm trying to, to, to narrow down the exact property rights that, that we're dealing with and what's being interfered with here. I'm thinking to the, the parts in plaintiff's complaint where they're talking about not being able to use the, the jet ski because of sediment getting into the motors. Let, let's change the, the facts just a little bit. That Let's assume plaintiff is out there on the lake with the right to do that on his jet ski on the day that this dam fails and sediment comes rushing in that day, not just the buildup, but the sediment comes rushing in and gets into the engine. Would he have a claim for trespass at that point or for nuisance at that point? Or would that also be barred? Certainly not for nuisance um, because it has to affect property that the plaintiff owns. Um, I believe that if there were a personal injury, for instance, if the debris knocked the person off the boat and into the water and they suffered injuries, then I think there's, there's a cause of action for that. Um, as far as, you know, the, the, the problem with, with that scenario from a legal perspective is that the property that would be damaged would be personal property. It'd be a jet ski or whatever they're out there on. And um, I haven't explored, you know, whether you could trespass. Well, I guess I, in my mind I was equating trespass to chattels with, with trespass to real property, so I understand the, the distinction there. But it, Yeah, and, and uh, you know, they're not, I mean, it's not like they're, they're taking it. Perhaps if it's damaged, maybe. I'm just, I'm not sure. I do have a question. So when I, when I read the complaint, it does talk about significant pollution, sediment, and de debris actually flowing across plaintiff's property before dumping into the cove. So there are uh, um, several allegations in here about the sediment actually on their personal property. Well, in, in the complaint, they allege that um, the sediment flowed across their property, mm -hmm. their real property. Yep. Um, we now know that is not true. Um, we, uh, and, and there's a lot more 
than is in the record about that. But we know that that is not true. There is an affidavit from uh, Bob Wiggins that says it is not true. And when Mr. Kelkey had the opportunity to respond to that affidavit, and you know, this is on the motion for summary judgment, we've, we've said there was no, no sediment crossed the lake. We know that to be true. I mean, no sediment crossed their property. Right. We know that to be true. Uh, if they were going to create an issue of fact, at that point, it was their burden to come back with an affidavit or something and say, yes, it did. And they did not do that. Mr. Kelkey gave an affidavit that's in the record that speaks about everything running into the cove. Um, the other thing about the complaint is all the allegations are of damage to the cove. You don't see any allegations about damage to their property. Um, there were a couple of other questions that were that were asked. Um, the the I, I did want to bring up uh, the South Carolina point. I, I don't. I have not heard any question in this case about whether South Carolina law applies. Um, the, the order on the 12C motion stated that South Carolina law applied. I don't think that issue's ever been raised. And we did cite South Carolina law in our brief, which we um, believe is accurate. Um, as far as the one-time event, issue that Judge uh, Murphy raised, you know, e even, if there, even if there is ongoing um, residual damage, uh, residual sedimentation from the initial act, their expert says that that is sediment flowing into the cove. It is not sediment flowing onto their property. Let me ask one, one thing about the, the one-time exception rule. Sure. Uh, just because we don't have a ton about that, you know, there's many issues in these briefs that had to be covered in only a certain amount of time. Is there anything to your knowledge um, that our research, uh, further research, may discover exceptions to that rule? And if there are, are there any exceptions to that one-time rule that you feel like you need to address and, and try to negate or, or explain? The exception to the one-time rule to us. The, the the only the only exception that I saw mentioned in any of the cases was the exception that you, or maybe, uh, Mr. Van mentioned the one about um, uh, residual, or or continu uh, I don't remember the exact word continuing um, things or or things that uh, continued invasion uh, as a result of the initial like failure. And um, again, uh, I, I'm not, South Carolina is a little more strict about that than North Carolina is. But I think the determinative point on that issue is that that sediment is flowing into the cove that the plaintiffs do not own. And that's what gets us back to the fundamental question in this case, the question of whether 
someone who does not own a particular parcel of real property can sue when that parcel of real property is damaged. And, you know, and it, on, on its biggest picture, easiest thing to look at that wipes out all the plaintiff's claims, that's the issue. And, and the answer is clear. You can't sue about land that you don't own. And if we allow, um, if we allow plaintiffs to do this, uh, it will be new law. Um, I hate to say, <laughs> I'll say it. It would open a floodgate of litigation, um, and it would be uh, clearly not what the legislature intended um, with the statutory scheme we have, and it was certainly not contemplated by the common law that we have to work with. I'll be glad to answer any further questions. Thank you, sir. Appreciate Thank your time. You. Thank you. <clears throat> Mr. Vann? Um, to uh, Judge Collins, your point uh, with respect to the allegations of trespass, I would direct your attention to page uh, 53 of the record, paragraph 16 of the affidavit of Mr. McCoy, where um, he admits that there was uh, material that flowed on the plaintiff's actual property. And what about the, the um, fact that perhaps there aren't any damages claimed for that sedimentation? Is that is that correct? Well. Um, there are no, they would be entitled to nominal damages as okay. trespass. They don't, True. the damages that they're focused on is getting the gunk out of the cove and, okay. and dredging the cove. Um, with respect to the, uh, the jury uh, instruction that was, that was cited by Mr. McNeil, he uh, did not continue the instruction. Which has the, the specific elements. First, that defendant substantially interfered with plaintiff's use and enjoyment of the plaintiff's property. Interference is substantial when it results in significant annoyance, material physical discomfort, or an injury to a person's health or property. A slight inconvenience or a petty annoyance is not a substantial interference. And so we would contend that we've at least raised at, at the factual level on um, with the discovery that this is this is a significant annoyance that the sedimentation um, the increasing rate of it what was deposited in the initial event and how it um, substantially interferes with their um, use and enjoyment of the lake that can, can you point me in um, in the complaint to any allegations of your of, of the party's legal right in this lake in this cove any easement any any anything no ma'am that um the actually the the deeds were attached to the defendant's answer that was submitted on the judgment on the pleadings um the plaintiffs have never contended that they own the cove their contention is their legal right is the common law littoral rights but with respect to their action the um, sedimentation and control act claim yeah. that's not an issue because all that is required under 
113A-66 is any person injured by a violation of this article or any ordinance rule or other duly adopted by the secretary um, for the initiation or continuation of land disturbing activity for which an erosion and sedimentation control plan is required may bring a civil action against the person alleged to be in violation. So here they definitely have, and uh, with the standing point, the record is certainly clear, while the, the complaint wasn't as clear as it should have been. The record is clear that they do have standing because the defendants were cited for the violation of the Charlotte Ordinance, and that gives them the right to a private cause of action under um, the Sedimentation and Pollution Control Act where their ownership is not an issue and has not been raised in any case, any reported case that I've looked at in that, um, with respect to that statute. The question is, are they a person injured? And um, we contend they are. And certainly the, the pleadings uh, make that contention, such that 12C dismissal was not appropriate. Um, and so the, it, Mr. McNeil, his, his assertion under the law is simply incorrect that people can sue. I mean, if, if you reject our analysis that they do not have littoral rights, um, we still contend that because they live on the lake, um, they have a private cause of action under the, under the statute because they've been affected by the land-disturbing activity of, of the defendants. And that is all that is required to allege a claim under the Act. Or, well, in addition to that, the defendants have been cited for a violation and fined, which is what has happened in this case. So it, it, it's simply, and that, this Act has been on the books since 1973, and it's never been interpreted, as far as my research has disclosed, that there is some requirement of, of ownership of the specific parcel that has been disturbed or affected by the activity. The question is, are you injured by the violation? And the plaintiffs clearly are. And so we would ask that you um, reverse the trial court's judgment. I, I want to go back and just clarify something we talked about when you were first up um, regarding page six of your reply brief. And you, you mentioned in passing, and, and maybe I misheard you or misunderstood you, that since South Carolina law is not clear on this, our choice of law principles would allow us to apply North Carolina common law. Is there any authority you have for that point? Uh, that, that may or may not be true. I just haven't um, heard that or recall reading that, and I just wanted to, to know the, the basis for that thought, if, if you have any authority in mind or any cases in mind on that, that choice um, of law principle. Okay. First, just to be clear on my typo, the, the, the correct citation from the Low Country case is that the extent of littoral rights is an unanswered question in this state. And uh, to your question, yes, I do believe that there is authority. I did not cite it in my materials. I did not address, not get into the conflict of laws issues. But I do believe that there are materials that say that um, if the, um, I guess the um, form where the injury occurred is not clear on the specific point, then the court can apply the forum states. Um, rules and I will I will provide that authority to the court. I do believe there is authority on that point. Thank you, sir. I, I don't have any other questions, Mr. Collins. No. Do you know if your clients lease from high water mark to water on Lake Wiley? Generally, generally you buy the real estate from your legal access from the road down to the high water mark. 
Because Duke owns to the high water mark. Right. Do you I know if your folks have a lease? Generally, Duke on other lakes, Duke will do leases of access across there from the high water mark down to the water. Do, do your folks have that ac that lease access? I do not know. Um, I do know they have that the, the boat dock. They've complied with whatever the requirements are to have a, a boat well, dock. Well, my understanding is that's why Duke leases so they can control what kind of boat dock you build and things like that. So, yes, sir. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Uh We'll consider this case submitted, and uh, you'd like to close this out?